Welcome to the Rhizome Podcast, a storytelling project from Roots for Change, exploring issues impacting youth in our communities. My name is Wen Chan, one of the producers of this podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. This episode, we will explore how food insecurity has major impacts on the lives of people here in so-called Edmonton. Dee and I chatted with Julia Trad, a youth doing food justice and dignity work with migrant populations. Her work is inspired by her personal relationships and lived experience as a first-generation Chinese-Vietnamese Canadian. Julia is the Food Dignity Program Manager with the Multicultural Health Brokers Cooperative. Julia's role is tied to responding to the urgent food needs of ethnocultural families experiencing chronic poverty through the Grocery Run program, as well as advancing food security strategies tied to socioeconomic inclusion and well-being. She is currently working in collaboration with multicultural health brokers, community members, and community partners to build a business case for a social enterprise for a cultural grocery box and to explore food security strategies tied to urban agriculture. Keep listening to hear that conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julia. Um, Do you mind telling us your name and pronouns and uh, what brought you to the work you do with food security? For sure. Thank you so much, Wen and Dee, for having um, me with you all today. And so my name is Julia, and my pronouns are she and her. My educational background is in social work, and I've always had an interest in food insecurity and working with immigrant and refugee populations. And this interest led me to the Multicultural Health Brokers, where I did my placement and learned more about food insecurity and a strength-based approach to um, food justice and dignity. Thank you. And as you talk to us about your background and where you're coming from, um, can you speak a bit more to your identity and how it influenced you to do this work? Mm -hmm. So I'm a first generation um, Vietnamese Chinese Canadian. And so my family shares a very similar journey and plight as other immigrant and refugee families. And they struggled a lot to resettle in Canada. They didn't know a lot of people. They didn't speak the language. And like many other newcomers, Edmontonians and immigrant populations, they worked multiple jobs, long hours and had really little pay to show for it. But they had enough to put a roof over their head and um, After that, it was about stretching dollars to cover the costs of uh, living. That makes a lot of sense in terms of the immigrant struggles, especially just after moving here, right? And I remember you mentioning um, from our pre-interview how they would have benefited so much from a program like this uh, back then. Um, With that said, like in what ways now... um, in talking to them with the work that you do, like, like, what are their thoughts in it now that, um, that, that you tell them that this is, this is the work of, like, grocery run is the thing that you do these days? Mm-hmm. I think, like many parents, you know, they're, they're trying to shield you from all of the hardships and, you know, the ugly parts of life. And um, your parents are really trying to give you the best shot at whatever they didn't have. And so um, my parents' hardships and sacrifices gave me firsthand insight into the realities that many of our community members face. And so um, my experience as a first generation has given me insight into what could have helped and relieved some of the extreme pressures and stress of my family. And it's helped me to understand and conquer that these values of food dignity and food justice. 
Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense, right? So like even before heading into this kind of job, you've already developed that firsthand experience and lived experience of what it's like to, to be in their place, right? So thanks for, thanks for answering that. So that said, tackling food insecurity is not a single-sided issue of just providing people with food. Um, and I think multicultural health brokers uh, really highlights the nuanced struggles of newcomers. Um, as you've said before, with your, with your own parents' struggles, right? Was there anything that surprised you with having access to culturally relevant food? Um, so one of our community members um, in our community conversations about food dignity, a woman from the Eritrean community shared, food is a foundation for human beings. It means life, it means health, it means strength, it means growth. Food has incredible value and honor. And I thought about how this is such a powerful articulation of how food is much more than just filling your stomach. And so when we lean into this concept of um, dignity and honor, I think it gives a much deeper understanding of concepts such as cultural relevance and food justice. And so to honor somebody, it means to respect and to listen to them. And it means deepening our knowledge and understanding of food insecurity by learning directly from the people. And so when we take these learnings and we apply this to culturally honoring approaches or practices, it means leveraging and animating these strengths, assets, and wisdoms from the community and pursuing strategies that are in line with the culture and realities of the community. So when we are guided by these insights, it allows us to, for example, better leverage our partnerships with the Empton Food Bank and leftovers. Um, and for example, identifying specific food items that um, our community members know how to cook, consume, and enjoy. It's not that our community members are asking for um, luxury items that are only found in, in their home countries, but it's our community members asking for, for food items that are essentially basic groceries that they can create culturally relevant meals from foods that are familiar from home because food is tied to their sense of self. It's tied to their culture. It's their way of sharing a piece of themselves and their culture with their children and um, keeping a piece of that self and preserving it. And so it's it's much more than um, something from back home. It, it's so much more than that. It's tied to um, these different components of ourselves. And it can also be a gateway to um, socioeconomic inclusion and well-being. Amazing. That was a very articulate response. Thank you so much, Julia. Um, but your point about um, honor and food being tied to our sense of self and connecting that to how a lot, like a lot of ways that this can help reduce food waste and build really meaningful relationships in community. Um, I really appreciated um, everything that you said about that. Thank you. Um, so could you tell us a bit about the Persimmon Project? Mm -hmm. So the Persimmon Project, in short, is about co-creating long-term solutions to food security and dignity with the families that we serve. And so these solutions are rooted in community realities, assets, strengths, and aspirations. And so the Persimmon Project has been um, ongoing since uh, August, and it's funded by the United Way. And so since August, we've been working on multiple strategies, including um, hosting community conversations about food justice and food dignity, and learning directly from the people how food insecurity is experienced, and exploring with them their sense of solutions. We've also been working on a business case for a social enterprise related to culturally relevant food. And we've also been um, working to pilot for this growing season, a number of urban agricultural activities um, for as many of our community members are actually experienced uh, farmers from back home. Wow, that's really interesting. Like when you think of food dignity, well, at least for myself, it can seem kind of vague if people don't like really rooted in community 
realities and like utilizing the skills people already have and um, what that means to be culturally relevant to them. And on the website, I found it really striking how it said Grocery Run serves 75 families back in 2003, but now you guys serve 550 families or 3,200 individuals each week. And 50% of those are children. So I wonder if you have seen certain populations that might be left out of food security work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that number is so challenging because I, I think that it's not necessarily, um, even in 2013, an accurate reflection of the number of families that were actually experiencing food insecurity. I think um, more broadly, that's a reflection of how our resources can really limit what we're able to do. And so while, for example, we might want to provide fresh produce and culturally relevant food items, to do that, it's really expensive. And so we might be limited to be able to do that. Um, And even when back in 2013, we were serving 75 families, we had so many families on the wait list. We had so many community members that are in a similar uh, position where they are in need of urgent food. Um, But because of our resources, we weren't able to respond. And so the pandemic really forced us to have to step up and um, support our community members who had lost employment or were on the verge of uh, poverty and now newly finding them in need of food support. And so... um, when I think about the, the question, have you seen certain populations left out of food security work? I think that there are many community members that are in need of food support, but aren't able to access, whether that's because um, they've had um, poor experiences with other food assistance programs, they'd find that it's not um, meeting their food needs in terms of volume or quality or, or the contents that they're looking for. Maybe they have chronic illnesses, they need to um, have particular uh, diets or foods to meet those food needs. Really what I'm trying to say is that I think community members can be left out or populations can be left out because organizations or projects or initiatives are limited in the resources that they have to respond. And so that can exclude community members, but there also can be some higher level policies that exclude community members from accessing really important resources that they need, whether that's asking for certain types of information, maybe asking for financial statements to to verify that they are um, of low income, for example, or if they need um, personal information that a community member doesn't feel comfortable to share, that can also create exclusion. Um, But I think another component of it too is that marginalized or vulnerable populations sometimes are not always included in the identification or exploration of what potential solutions or food security strategies may be. So I think that answer could be um, that question could be answered in many different ways. Yeah, I wonder, especially with COVID, um, having cut funding in a lot of sectors, especially in the nonprofit and related struggles with just accessing food. And have there been changes in how you've been able to reach these populations? Mm-hmm. So as a result of COVID, of course, it's really um, impacted our ability to have in-person services and supports. And so a lot of our work has transitioned online, but this has created a number of barriers and new challenges as well. For example, not all of our community members have consistent access to internet or to um, technology needed to use uh, Zoom or WhatsApp. And so um, our brokers have been able to maintain their relational practice and maintain relationships and connections to the community through um 
trying to leverage donations of phones um, and also applying for um, Chromebooks and other tech for their families. And so it's been really important to maintain that connection through natural channels with the community, whether that's through WhatsApp or WeChat, where community members might be already familiar with using. But it's also about trying to develop and build on the capacity of our community members to be able to use um, new technology or other platforms. And then um, the grocery run, we've also implemented a number of changes to overcome new COVID challenges. Um, for example, a lot of our community members are so deeply fearful about COVID exposure or contracting COVID. And so we've actually, since March of last year, transitioned to citywide delivery. And so we deliver about 540 um, grocery hampers to families and seniors directly to their doors every week by using natural helpers, brokers, and volunteers from the general public. Wow. Okay. So that really highlighted how not only are you dealing with getting the food to the masses, essentially, but now you are dealing with the additional digital divide that currently exists and finding ways and solutions around that. Right. So like all of these, all of these things together with the COVID paranoia is a lot on your plate. And um, it's really cool the way that you folks have been handling it. So with that said, in terms of folks being left out of the table, um, in, in terms of getting access to food, there's a lot of rhetoric out there about serving, quote unquote, vulnerable communities that can turn into making such communities into a monolith, attaching language that is associated with being lesser or weaker and dodging systemic inequalities that cause injustices like food insecurity. Have there been counter narratives or ways you've seen the populations you've worked with take back their power? Mm-hmm. I feel like our work is is this really careful balance between trying to make visible the unique challenges and barriers that our populations face while also trying to ensure that we are making visible and elevating their many unique strengths, talents, and aspirations. And so, you know, when we talk about um, communities that are excluded from identifying strategies or understanding the issues, it's really important that our community members are at those tables sharing their experience because we need to have a more um, complex and nuanced understanding of how food insecurity is experienced, for example, how high-level policies impact the everyday lives or accessibility of services and supports. Um, For example, when we were learning about how um, technology was a barrier to our community members' Um, our community members had a sense of solutions and and what we could do to try to overcome that. Um, So for example, we learned that some community members would go next door or to a store nearby to access Wi-Fi. And so um, we're we're trying to learn from our community members, how can we um, ensure that you have the supports and resources you need to be, uh, to support your children that are transitioning to online schooling, for example. How can we make this work? And our community members are very much aware and they are very resilient and resourceful and innovative themselves. And so it, it makes a lot of sense to have them you know, alongside of us co-creating these solutions. Um, and I think the, the Persimmon project itself is a testament to trying to um, return power back to the people by elevating their voices and elevating their sense of solutions. Like all of the um, strategies that we had mentioned, including the urban agriculture and the social enterprise that came from the community. Those are um, aspirations of the community. Thank you for that. And um, as you said, the Persimmon Project is a testimony to all of that, right? So I I would like to ask, um, in terms of these high-level policies, have you seen any, like, shifts in these so-called policies, like, throughout this pandemic and how you've um, you've been serving serving these populations? 
I think it's really important that part of our work in making visible the experiences and challenges of our community members is illustrating how our communities are differently impacted by COVID-19. And so, for example, some communities, they don't have access to um, COVID-specific supports. For example, if they haven't worked um, in Canada, they might not qualify for CERB. Um, if they just recently immigrated to Canada, they might not be eligible for that, depending as well on their pre-migration pathway. If they are privately sponsored or government sponsored, it can impact their support or their access to resources and supports in the community. And so I think when we have a more nuanced understanding of how those high level policies intersect and implicate everyday lives, then, then we could have a better understanding or approach to these uh, issues. Um, and, and I think too, with that, understanding how our community members are differently impacted. Maybe this is where we could have a little bit more grace because as our city is moving towards um, recovery and transitioning back to post-COVID, our community members will remain unemployed. They were the first ones to be let go when, you know, the pandemic hit and, you know, restaurants and all of these different sectors were closing down. A lot of our community members are usually the ones employed in those in those frontline positions um, being let go or having their hours reduced. And most likely they will be the last ones to return back to work as well. Um, you know, like that, from, from my personal experience, my dad was always the first one to be let go and he would always have to be competing with people that are younger than him, that speak more English than him. You know, we have a lot of, you know, Edmontonians who are English speaking, who have um, skills, who are looking for jobs. And unfortunately, we have found ourselves in a position where we are competing against other fellow Edmontonians and community members. And so... It's, it's a really difficult time right now. And even when we are writing grants, when we're advocating for the work that we are doing, um, I think a lot of policymakers or, or granting bodies don't understand that our populations are differently impacted and they will be impacted longer than other populations. Um, and so there is this um, push to stop emergency food programs. There's a push to um, advance longer term solutions that address the underlying issue, but there is a a missing piece of understanding that while yes, we do need to have longer term solutions, people still have to eat today. There are still urgent food needs that remain unmet. And so it needs to be the simultaneous working of providing for, for the well-being of families and seniors and individuals, as well as working towards longer term solutions. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of this divide that exists between the populations that, that you serve, you as kind of like the middle person and, and like these folks in higher positions um, putting together these policies that ultimately affect the populations that you serve the most, right? And based from your own dad's like lived experience, that's like, that's been the trend. It, like it's been the trend back then, it's still the trend right now. And it's only been exacerbated in the middle of a pandemic. And after the pandemic, what's like, where's that gonna leave us? Right. Um, so with that said, you mentioned like there's been a push to stop emergency food programs and the like in terms of these solutions, these short term solutions, these immediate solutions that we need right now. Um, but if you were to make at least one um, policy change that would really affect the quality of the work that you do and affect the quality of the lives of the people that you serve, what would it be? 
Mm -hmm. You know, that is so tough because there's so many, you know, when we look at food insecurity, it's, it's much more than just food security. Food security is just the the tip of the iceberg. The underlying issue Mm -hmm. really is Mm -hmm. poverty, you know, and that means having um, gainful employment. It means having affordable housing. It's, it's not necessarily having the next best, um, food distribution program. Um, and so when you when you pick at a piece of policy, it could be about trying to recognize the credentials and education of um, foreign credentials and foreign, foreign education. Imagine the impact uh, of, of that and of that policy alone and how much um, employment could be generated from that. How many of our very skilled and talented uh, professionals could go back into their their areas of work and and could actually get gainful and and, um, meaningful income to be able to pay for housing and all those other living expenses. And when we look at that piece alone, how many community members are not employed in their their actual areas of practice and are uh, unemployed or underemployed and how that alone creates um, and adds to chronic poverty. We could also look at housing and how housing is unaffordable or not just to our ethnocultural communities, but to many Edmontonians and, mm-hmm. and how there is a need for, for more affordable housing or um, uh, caps on, on rent and things like that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so there are so many different pieces that we could look at. There's so many different pieces that go into this, right? And um, like you said, like you've expanded on, it's not just food food insecurity, everything that you've mentioned in terms of folks not actually working in the fields that they work because because I also work with migrant populations, right? Like the deprofessionalization of um, of their careers, right? Like, so if they were dentists, I've worked with a, with a person who was a dentist um, before migrating here, and then they found that it can't be transferred. Like these credentials can't be transferred. They would have to go to dens- dental school all over again and spend at least what two hundred thousand just to get back into the field. So now he's working as a banquet server at a hotel, mm-hmm. and like yeah. that's been the story over over and over again. So it's like it's a brain drain from their original countries, and then they move here, and that that brain goes nowhere. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. The process of validating or transferring those yeah, exactly credentials can be so costly and time intensive, and so as a result we have you know we're essentially excluding people so so socially and economically and just yesterday um Yvonne Chu our executive director and I were talking about this and she said it really beautifully in that the multicultural health brokers has found a way to tap into these assets and ensure that these assets are are not wasted so for example one of our incredible and, and talented colleagues from the Oromo community Dinke um she was previously a lawyer and while she's not um, currently practicing law, she is still expressing justice and advocating for her community here. And so the Persimmon Project is another example of this. How do we leverage the, the skills and talents and strengths of our community members so that they are not wasted? Absolutely. And moving it towards something beyond what they would have expected, right? So um, like at some point for a lot of folks who don't get these kinds of opportunities after um, experiencing the professionalization, there's almost that like sense of like defeat that comes from that. And I see how um, the Persimmon Project empowers these individuals to, to essentially kind of do the work that they were set on doing in the first place, right? Before moving here, after moving here and then finding out otherwise. Um, and your piece about housing and like the gentrification of uh, communities and how all of this all together contributes to poverty, right? And we all, uh, I'm sure a lot of us know, like have seen such studies on how like a lot of times mental health and trauma, like the like a lot of the root causes behind that is poverty. Um, and so 
poverty going beyond all of this and ultimately serving um, the the well-being of of everybody in terms of um, these vulnerable communities and in terms of like and us as well right but at the end of the day that that is where it's really exacerbated so I just mm -hmm. wanted to say thanks for <laughs> um, uh, for answering these questions these these questions for me so yeah take it away <laughs> yeah I think this all just like this is about people's lives and we're like making it a policy thing we're making it about a funding thing like how grotesque is that? And as you mentioned, Julia, like there's so many, so many other causes often rooting from poverty. And that's also a political choice. Um, as you look forward, where do you see the future of Grocery Run maybe going? Mm -hmm. So for the Grocery Run program, we never intended for it to be a long-term strategy. It was always meant to be a stopgap measure to support um, the immediate urgent needs of families and seniors while we are working on longer term strategies. And so for the future of the grocery run, we really hope that it evolves into something much more than emergency food distribution. We hope that we can um, cultivate and, and nurture our current pilots, including the uh, social enterprise, as well as the urban agricultural activities, because those are helping to add to the socioeconomic inclusion and well-being of families with the urban agricultural activities. You know, there are a spectrum of benefits that can emerge from that, you know, for community members that were previously skilled farmers, it's an opportunity to transition those skills to a new growing environment and hopefully help those community members to network with related employment opportunities you know, it's, it's much more than just um, providing food. It, it's, it's a better way of honoring the, the strengths and assets of our community members. And so that's what we really hope for the grocery run. It's to evolve, to really be able to leverage the inherent strengths and assets and aspirations of our communities. Thank you so much, Julia. Um, with that said, we're just nearing the end of our interview here. Um, do you have any last thoughts, key takeaways, or things to plug? <laughs> no, we just really want to say that we really appreciate this opportunity to share about the food security work at the Multicultural Health Brokers. And also, we're really grateful for our partnerships with um, the Multicultural Family Resource Society, the Edmonton Food Bank, Leftovers, and also grateful for funding from the United Way, Second Harvest, Edmonton Community Foundation, and the Investment Readiness Program. Um, we hope that people understand that this work takes time and requires ongoing support and substantial resources. So we hope that people that are listening will link arms with us to carry forward this work. And um, we just want to ask you to check out our website, mchb.org, to follow us on Instagram, MCHB Grocery Run Yeg. And also, if you can contribute to our GoFundMe campaign to support the Grocery Run, um, our campaign name is Grocery Run People to People Solutions. Amazing. Thanks so much, Julia. Amazing. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you so much, Wen and Dee. Thank you for letting me do my plugs as well. <laughs>Thanks so much to Julia Tran for sharing her insights and experiences on the impacts and complexities of food security with migrant populations. As Julia mentioned, Grocery Run is in a time of transition and their funding is coming to an end. To help ensure they can keep their program going for another year, they launched a GoFundMe to raise $150,000 to sustain their work. We highly encourage you to share this campaign donate if you can, and support Groshi Run's work.
you can donate at gofundme.com slash f slash grocery You can find our transcripts at our website, jhcenter.org slash rootsforchange. Thanks to our funders, Edmonton Community Foundation, who made this podcast possible, and to CJSR 88.5 FM for airing this on the radio. We hope you'll be tuning in next time.